I like to listen to sermons or read books uh, on the side. I mean, listening to sermons is nice for me because I don't get to hear them on Sunday because I'm busy doing the sermoning, you know. So, so for me, I have a couple different pastors that I regularly listen to and several others that I sometimes listen to on podcasts or YouTube. And then, of course, I love to read books by a lot of different authors and people out there just to feed my soul. And one book that I read a few years ago was a book called Enemies of the Heart. Enemies of the Heart. It was a really good book. It was written by uh, Pastor Andy Stanley. And uh, it was just a good book about dealing with some things that are afflicting our hearts and our, uh, the health of our heart. And he talked about four topics in that book. The topics were guilt. Uh, there was, I'm sorry, guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. And as he, talked, as he unpacked it, um, he used the phrases for each one of those things. He used a short phrase that stood out to me that just never, I never forgot. And that was this. He described them in four, uh, four terms that look like this. I owe you, or you owe me, or I owe me, or God owes me. And I, as I thought about that, and I talked to Anthony uh, Curtis, who's in the online room, we work a lot together on, uh, on content here. And uh, I talked to him, I said, you know, one of these days I want to talk about those things because wouldn't it be great? This is, what just, this is what caught my mind. Wouldn't it be great or what would it be like to live debt-free, right? What would it be like to live debt-free? And so we worked on our own sermon series here called Living Debt-Free and the idea is finding emotional freedom. But most of the emotional freedom we're finding is from, from emotional bondage that is in conjunction with a relationship. And so ultimately, it's relational, a relational series to help us and serve us on an emotional level. Living debt-free. Now, today I want to talk about that as we get started. Because I want to live debt-free. I'll be honest with you. I... Um, Financially, I, I, we lived, we lived debt-free, and I, I didn't always way back at one time for a little while, but I, we do, and I don't want to be paying compound interest to someone else to get rich off of me, you know? I, I want to be debt-free and better off, and I, want, I don't want anyone to owe me either financially. I want us to be all, you know, okay with each other. And it, when it comes to relational issues, I want to be debt-free as well, and I want to emotionally be debt-free in, 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 in other parts of my life. So we're going to talk about that for the next few weeks. And I'll be honest, every week's going to be very different from the other. So sometimes when we do a sermon series, it's like it builds, like one, we sort of talk and that conversation builds. But we're going to take about four different topics about living debt-free and finding emotional freedom. Each week we're going to go a different direction. Two of them will be a little similar and like two sides of the same coin, but they're different directions. And today we're going to talk about the idea that I owe you. I owe you. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot straight with you for a minute about this before I get started. It's my, hot, my practice every week. It has not always been my practice, but it's been my practice for a while now to come in a day or two before Sunday and preach the sermon to an empty room. And I did this one twice because it's heavy <laughs> and because it was not short. And so I'm just going to tell you right now, this is important today. And what I, what I want to say is this, um, I may be just a, pit, a pinch longer, I want to acknowledge that up front. The last six weeks or so, the service, sermons have been a little shorter than usual. Um, so I'm going to 
I'm going to kind of cash in on the shorter ones for the last six weeks and borrow a couple minutes from each one maybe and give my, hope that you'll give me a little grace today. Um, but uh, I just, I'm asking you to do me a favor today and sit back and let, I, I'm, here's my prayer today. Somebody finds emotional freedom from the bondage of IOU. And if nothing else, sit back and just say, God, do this. In somebody, do this in me. So be with me today. I'm going to try not to talk fast like I do. I will talk fast, but I'll try not to um, as we get going. Because there's so much to be said here. And I'm just asking you to buckle down and, and follow a, a, an important but heavy thought that can be life-changing to somebody today. You see, I owe you comes from something that happens when we've wronged somebody. And we all have. All of us are sinners. All of us are imperfect. All of us have wronged ourselves and others in life. Even if we feel that others have wronged us more, We've still also wronged others. And sometimes the people that we've wronged, we feel they may have even wronged us more than we've wronged them, but we still know we've wronged people. We've all done it before. And to the point that we've been wrong, that's the topic today, the I-O-U. When we've wronged someone, in essence, we've taken something from them. We've taken from them their peace, perhaps. Maybe we literally took something like we stole something from them. Or perhaps we took something from their reputation by what we gossiped about them. Or perhaps we took some joy from their heart or some peace from their life and replaced it with, with concern and heaviness. But whenever we've wronged someone on some level, we've taken something from them. And we are in debt. We feel in debt to them. That's why, that's why we use the phrase, I owe you an apology. I owe you an apology. Why do we say that? Because we feel an indebtedness, don't we, to somebody. Now, Oftentimes, we understand that that debt cannot be repaid. What we've done cannot be fixed. All that we can sometimes do is an acknowledgement and an apology, but they can't repay the debt. All we're able to do is an acknowledgement and an apology. Some things are just too big and too heavy, and there's nothing else can be done. But we feel obligated to pay something in our soul. And what's weird about debt, being in debt to somebody, is the, it's the one who is in debt to somebody else that is the one that tends to run and hide. Have you ever noticed that? So if I were to pick on, like, let's make up some fictional people here. Let's say that John and Bill are friends, and Bill asks John if he could borrow some money. He borrows $1,000 from John, and he says, I'll pay you back next week. And John says, okay, I'll, I'll do that then. But then four or five weeks later, Bill's never paid John back. Maybe things got tighter than he meant to. He couldn't do it. That's why he was in trouble in the first place because he, he didn't handle his money right. I don't know. But a month later, he still owes it the money. And, and it's possible that when John sees Bill, John doesn't want to see Bill because he's mad at him for owing him money. It's possible. But in my experience, that's not how it usually goes. What usually happens is John and Bill drift apart, but it's because Bill, who owes John money, is the one who hides. He avoids. Because he doesn't want to see the guy in case he calls him out for owing him money or doesn't want to make eye contact with him because he's afraid that if he makes eye contact that John will say, they'll both know. And so Bill hides from John because he owes him something. That's what happens when we're in debt to somebody. And when we wrong somebody, more often than not, we're the ones that hide. It's the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible when they disobeyed God. And when God came down to look to, to walk with them, they hid from his presence, right? They're the ones who hid. It's what happens to us when we, when we feel in debt to somebody, we tend to hide. And what happens when we do that is oftentimes 
because we can't face our debtors, we can't bear to face our debtors, once again the offended one is left to pay the price in our reaction to our own debt. There's an old saying in the Proverbs uh, that says, the borrower, the borrower is servant to the lender. In other words, in a relational dynamic, or in any dynamic, the authority on some level belongs to the one who is owed more than the, to the one who owes them. Like financially, there's a level of authority when you're in debt to somebody, that the borrower is servant to the lender. And in, 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 in relational debt, when I do something wrong to somebody, uh, in that, to some extent, that my indebtedness, what I wrong, is I've lost moral authority with them. There's a position of authority that shifts in dynamic, and it becomes very, very difficult because of it. Now, here's what I'm trying to say. Um, if we're not careful, the um, emotional authority that we hand off can really limit us. I'm reminded of a Bible story that I'm not going to get into today. We're going to look at some scripture later on, but I'm going to set the stage for a while. If you want to go home and read a Bible story uh, at length, you should read about King David. I'm going to do a sermon series someday on King David. I love the story. There's so much there, his life. But later in his life, after he had risen to the reins of being the king of Israel, David had sat on the throne and he made a horrible decision. He fell into moral failure on a huge level. And it caused devastation. And he tried to cover his sin, did something else that was worse, and made a big old mess. And he was confronted about it, and, and it, it cost him something dearly, and he made it right. And kind of got his feedback under him and, 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 and got back on track. But the problem was, whatever price he paid initially, it wasn't over yet. Because years later, as his kids grew up, some of his kids began to struggle with the same things. His moral failure was both... Uh, 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 you know, in, in a sexual way as well as in a harming someone else way in, to cover up his, his sin. And one of his kids did something very bad and it needed to be dealt with. But David felt powerless. Read the story. He felt powerless to do something about it. He sat back and did nothing until one of his other kids did something drastic about it instead because David felt he lost the moral authority because of what he did wrong. He felt indebted through his own actions. That's what happens to us sometimes, and we, we, we see this all the time in culture where people, uh, you know, they do something wrong. It's an absent dad who tries to make it up to the kids by giving them lots of stuff because he feels indebted to them. And when the kids get older and struggle with teenage issues and, you know, girl problems or temptations from friends for drugs and alcohol or bad, bad behavior or a relationship they shouldn't sexualize but they tend to, and the dad wants to step in and do what a dad needs to do and say, hey, watch out now, let's, let's step back. But he feels he can't do it because he abandoned them. He feels like he's lost his moral authority to speak into their life. And that was where David was. David's kids messed up and he couldn't. Then another child did something drastic to fix it. And then that child, David couldn't fix that. And he just sat back and watched his family and ultimately his kingdom for a while disintegrate because of his own failures. He felt a lack of authority. And that's what happens to us when we, oh, if we're not careful, it will leave us crippled. Now, the truth is, is that while we cannot fix some of the things we've ever done to somebody, depending how big they are, there's just nothing you can do, there's something we all can do to help. And sometimes this thing that I'm going to share with you can make all the difference in the world. This one thing can change everything about the problem. Sometimes it can't. 
But at the very least, it can change something inside of you from the turmoil because we know that when we feel we've wronged someone and we owe them, we know that that feels weighty on our spirit and our emotional life and there's a bondage there. And this one thing, it could change everything, but it can definitely at the very least do something to set you free on some level from a crippling, crushing guilt. And that is a simple idea of confession. Confession being owning it. Acknowledging it, admitting it, and apologizing. And that's something that sounds basic, but we struggle with confession. All of us do. We struggle with apologies. In fact, I've learned um, that, um, you know, it's hard to us. And confession comes in several forms. Whether I've wronged somebody and they were hurt, but they don't know it was me. They know someone hurt them, but they don't know where it came from. And so... I'm thinking if I ever tell them it was me, they'll be very upset or there'll be consequences for me. I, don't, I can't face that. So we, we keep it to ourselves. Confession is going to them and saying, hey, that was me. And I want to I acknowledge it. Or confession could be they know exactly that it was me that did that to them. They know exactly what I said about them or what I did or what I did not do that I was supposed to do. But the problem is they don't know that I know what I did. Or they don't know that I know how I hurt them. Or they don't know that I care. And so confession is me saying to them, hey, I know what I did, and I know how that must have hurt you, and I know, and I, and I do care, and I am sorry. And sometimes confession is going to somebody, they've wronged me and I've wronged them. We've wronged each other. But part of the pain is things that I've done, my reactions, my contribution. I've added pain to the situation. And it's me saying, I acknowledge my part of what was done. And this is where it gets tricky, by the way. This is where it gets tricky because sometimes we don't go to confess, we go to try to control. Because there's a wrong way to do that. Like if I've wronged somebody, if we've wronged each other and I did something I shouldn't have done to them as well, it's not confession, it's not what I'm talking about when you go to them and say, well, I want to admit that I, what I did was wrong, but it's because of what you did to me. That's not a confession. That is an attempt to inflict more pain, to lay it at their feet. That's what we sometimes do. We try to say, well, I'm justifying what I did. It was wrong, but it's because of you. And all we're doing is we're creating more pain. It's not a, you may as well have just stayed home. You might as well have not even tried to quote-unquote confess if that's how we do it. Because that's just intention to justify ourselves, and it doesn't help anything. It hurts more. Or we're like, I'm sorry if you're sorry. Or, hey, I'm saying I'm sorry your turn, you know. And that's not what we're trying to do. That's trying to manipulate a situation. Or it's to say, imply they have to forgive us. This is the worst one. The passive aggressiveness of people sometimes is horrible. I just want you to know that we've wronged each other, but I don't expect you to apologize because you don't have to because I'm the bigger person. So as the bigger person, I want you to know that because I'm a better Christian and all, I'm sorry. That's not... That's garbage, right? That's the kind of stuff that people who are manipulative try to do. They try to find a way to, you know, dance around the right things to do in a way that doesn't really jeopardize what they want and control outcomes. But that's not the humble spirit of coming to somebody and saying, look, regardless, regardless of what they did, regardless of anything else, if I've done something wrong, to go to somebody and say, hey, no excuses. I should not have done that. It was wrong. And it may have probably, I'm sure it hurt. I'm sorry. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? If I'm being gender stereotypical, men really have a hard time with saying I'm sorry more than women stereotypically. Why is that? And I think people in authority struggle sometimes with saying I'm sorry. Parents to their kids and 
employers to their employees, and number of scenarios where something you know, you know, uh, it could be from police officers to court people to pastors. Anyway, we struggle sometimes to say, uh, you know, if I feel authority, why do people in authority struggle to say I, I was wrong? I'm sorry. Why is that? And um, I, I don't know why. I, I think I, maybe we feel it gives us a, it gives us a vulnerable spot when we're supposed to be in charge. Maybe that's why men, men, men feel they're in charge all the time, I guess. I don't know. But here's the thing. It's not weakness. In fact, it's hard to look at anyone that you're influencing and expect them to ever say they're sorry or for them to ever make their stuff right when we never set an example. And rather than it weakening you to say you're sorry, mom and dad, this is true for you too, rather than it weakening you to ever say, hey, I was wrong, I'm sorry about that, it actually, it actually, it actually is powerful. It says to somebody else, look, it's okay to admit when we're wrong. It's, this, is, this is an example of how we come forward and say, we need to make things right. We should never be afraid of those words, I'm sorry. But what's weird about it is, um, it's not just the words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is hard to say, but it's not the hardest thing to say. Welcome to somebody and you don't want to talk to them and you, and you finally get the courage to say, hey, I'm sorry. That's hard. You know what's harder than that? To say, will you forgive me? Because now they have the chance to say no. It's like you're reaching out saying, hey, I want to reach out. Make it right. Will you forgive me? And you're open-handed, you're vulnerable. And they can say no and slap your hand away, so to speak. Or you're reaching out and saying, here's, here's, a, here's a hard one, ready? I'm sorry, is there anything I can do to make it right? And it's vulnerable. And they might look at you and say, you can never make it right. That's scary. And that's why we don't want to do it, because we're afraid of being vulnerable. So I want to give you a definition of confession today that I hope that you'll write it down or take a picture of the screen or if you're online, take a screenshot. Um, but uh, this is what I want us to work with. Confession. Confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right. I love that phrase, bringing it to the light. We, we crafted this definition together in preparing this sermon because I, I wanted to just be something that you would hopefully write down and, and keep with you. And bringing it to the light's powerful because what happens is this. Secrets lose their power when exposed to the light. And confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right. There's a lot to break down in that statement. I'm going to take a few minutes to do that. I'm going to ask you to say it out loud with me because I want it to resonate in our soul. Let's say it together. Ready? Confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right. Let's do that one more time, ready? Confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right. Now that's not easy, but it might be the most powerful tools you'll ever do for your own sake. We'll say why later. But first of all, let's talk about what is this confession. We owe confession to the one we've wronged. And I believe that starts with God first. In other words, whenever I've wronged anybody, I've also wronged God. Joseph talks about that in the scriptures, you know. I, I'm sinning against God and sinning against you. Um, so if I, if I wrong anyone, if I wrong my wife, if I wrong my friend, I've wronged someone that God loves, someone that God created, someone who's God's child. So I've also wronged him, and I've disobeyed what he wants me to do to treat people right, and I've given him a bad reputation through my behavior, and a thousand things. So when I've done wrong, I owe apology. I owe it to God too. That's why we confess to God. 
So confession to someone we owe starts with God, but then it's also to others. And sometimes we think, well, I confessed it to God, so I'm not going to bother making it right with them. But listen carefully, God's forgiveness is powerful. We'll say something about that at the very end today. God's forgiveness is very powerful. And some of you have experienced God's amazing forgiveness, but don't miss this. God's forgiveness does not erase our responsibility to confess to others we've wronged. God's forgiveness does not erase our responsibility to confess to others when we've wronged them. In fact, quite the opposite. God's grace and God's forgiveness ought to free us. It ought to free us. In other words, if we're afraid that they won't respond the way we want them to respond to our confession, but we know that God is gracious and God is forgiving, then we ought to draw so much security from God's overwhelming, washing love that we can look at somebody else and say, regardless of how they accept my apology or not, I can at least offer it because I know that with God, I at least have that. And that grace and forgiveness gives me the freedom and drives my confession. But confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right. Don't miss that last half. Confession is not just saying, hey, I was wrong, I admit it, I'm going to do it again. It's the intention of making it right. In other words, it's more than an admission of guilt with no intention to change. There are people who that's how they do religion. There's entire religious practices where people go and they practice going to confession at church or at the altar. Uh, some, some denominations do it at a booth where you talk to, confess to somebody else. Some, like others, go to the altar and they pray and have confession time at the end of a service. And the problem is this. The problem is that confession, like that, is, is sometimes it looks like this. Hey, God, I did wrong and I acknowledge it. And I want you to get me off the hook for it. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And I'll be back to kind of clear the slate again. So we'll just keep this cycle going forever. That's not confession. You know? We understand this on some level, don't we? Let's let's use an obvious big transgression. A man cheats as as seeing another woman behind his wife's back. And he says, honey, I want you to have been spending time with another woman. I'm admitting it. So forgive. It's all good now. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. But I'll keep owning up to it. So we're okay, aren't we? Right? I mean... Or let's get, to more, let's get more practical to more where we, we, really, we really live. It's when people say, I know that I got angry at you and said a bunch of mean things when I was angry. And I shouldn't have said it. I admit it. But that's just how I am. So I'm going to keep being that way because that's how I am. As if somehow that's okay to justify being how we are if it hurts people. Right? That's not confession. Confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right, of making a change. It's repented in nature. Because guilty people are often repeat offenders. And as long as we're carrying secrets that only God knows and we've not brought them out and exposed them to the light with others, we're likely to repeat the past. So confession, the way that God designed it, breaks the cycle of sin and of guilt. There's a story in the Bible of a man named Zacchaeus. I mean, you know about Zacchaeus. You're familiar with that story? Zacchaeus, and I grew up in Sunday school. We heard that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. That's the song or something like that. Zacchaeus was more than a wee little man. Zacchaeus was, Zacchaeus was a wicked man. He worked in conjunction with the Roman government ruling over his people to collect taxes for them. And because of the authority he had to collect those taxes, he used his authority to the powerless people to take more than they owed and pocketed the difference and made himself wealthy in the backs of the people around him and wronged and embezzled. And people hated him and he was a messed up guy. 
But one day, Zacchaeus encountered Jesus. And he found that God loved him, and the love and forgiveness of Christ washed over Zacchaeus so powerfully that it changed his life. And Zacchaeus said to Jesus, I want to confess and I want to make it right with people. Now, according to their old Hebrew laws, the custom was that if you owed someone, you're supposed to pay them back and add, quote unquote, the fifth part to it. In other words, to add 20% to the debt when you finally pay it back. But Zacchaeus in this story said, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to confess and I'm going to go to those people, make it right. And I'm going to pay him back four times as much. 400% payback. What in the world is that? But Zacchaeus was saying, it's in my power to do more than just say I'm sorry, but to make it right. Sometimes when we've wronged someone, we can't make it right. There's nothing we can do. And that's why we're afraid to say those words, how can I make this right? Because we're afraid that we're vulnerable and they'll say to us, There's nothing you can do to make this right. But can I say this to you? Please hear me. That might be part of how we make it right. Is giving them them the chance to tell us how they feel. Because when we've wronged, I said this earlier, when we've wronged somebody, we've taken something from them, haven't we? When we, don't, don't miss this, so big. When we've wronged somebody, we've left, we've made them feel put down on some level. And we don't want to yield that power back. But confession is going and saying, look, I'm sorry, I admit it. Is there anything I can do to make it right? Will you forgive me? And if they say, no, I won't, or no, you can't make it right, that at least, and give them the chance to speak back, to have the voice to say, I really am hurt, or there's nothing that can be done about that. And in a way, if nothing else, that's a measure of giving them the chance to feel the power back that I've taken from them when I hurt them on any level. So I don't want to do that. I know. And we're going to talk about why it's so powerful for, for you later. But listen, but, but, we, but that's part of making it right, is looking at someone and saying, okay, that's okay. You don't have to. I, maybe I can't. I just wanted to let you know that I still am very sorry about it. And I hope that you will forgive me. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's still the right thing to do to be humble in that situation. Say, well, but if God forgives me, who cares about them? Well, it's true that you can't control that people forgive you, but we should care that we try to make it right. And, and by the way, this is part of being right with God. Did you know that? In fact, Jesus tells a story that we're going to look at, a couple of verses here. He's preaching a sermon, a famous sermon, Matthew 5. And in his message, Jesus brings an illustration up that would have been jarring to his audience. Like Jesus' audience would have been sitting there saying, what did he just say? Let me give you the background. It was customary for people in that Jewish Hebrew culture to go to the temple in the city of Jerusalem periodically and come to the brazen altar, to come to the altar and offer sacrifices in some kind of an atonement moment or kind of a God moment with them and God. They had burnt offerings and sin offerings and things like that. And they might live in the city and then bring their sacrifice whenever it was convenient, or they might have to come from out of town and travel to do that. Maybe they came on holy days, holidays. But in either case, probably you weren't the only one there. There wasn't like a hundred altars there, so you're probably waiting in line. And if you came during a feast season, you're probably waiting in a long line. It's like at, at Disney World trying to get on the ride, and you're like, is it really worth it, you know? They're like in this line waiting to have their chance to offer their sacrifice to try to have this relationship moment with God. That was their custom. That was their religious practice. And Jesus was acknowledging that people had this vertical idea of them and God, but they divorced it from the horizontal part of their relationship with each other. And so Jesus is trying to 
throughout the scripture, we could do this a hundred times over, we could point out that those two things are linked. Loving God and loving others as ourselves. They're not separate ideas, they're the same idea. And so Jesus is trying to jar them by saying, when you come to the city or you go to get in line, perhaps in a long line from a long trip, to offer your sacrifice between you and God, I want to tell you something that is very hard to hear. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23. He said, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, in other words, you've wronged somebody, you've hurt somebody, they have something against you, you owe them something. Jesus says, this, is, this would have been shocking to hear, he said, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. To which I'm picturing someone in his audience wanted to raise their hand and say, excuse me, Jesus, um, time out. I'm sorry to interrupt the message, but that's highly impractical. Like, do you realize how long I've been in line to get to this point? I'm at the front and, I'm at the front and I'm trying to do this thing with me and God and all of a sudden I remember something. It's so impractical to leave my stuff at the front of the Walmart line and go take care of this problem and get back in the back of the line again. Like, I mean, really? I have to go to a different town to take care of this problem. I gotta find a person that their schedule's convenience. This is a, and then I can come all the way back here, stand in the back of the line and get back to the front to offer my sacrifice to God. That's not very practical, Jesus. Wouldn't it be easier if I just kind of finished it with me and God and say, I'll take care, I promise, cross my heart, to take care of the other stuff later? But God knows that what we tend to do is we never go bother to actually do that later. We just feel better now. And God is saying, no, I want you to go take care of that. Because that's part of this. That's part of our relationship. I want you to go take care of that. You owe someone. I owe you. Go, go make it right. So what if they won't let me? That's not up to us. That's not the point of the message today. The part is, what do I owe? What, what do I need to own up to? What do I need to admit, acknowledge, and apologize for? Not how will they respond. God says, do your part. And that's part of this whole thing. So powerful. See, yeah, but it, it, what, what if they, do they have to do that? Because God has forgiven me. But just because God has forgiven you, doesn't mean that those you've wronged have and those I've wronged have. In fact, that person, please hear me, that person may be held hostage in bitterness and anger over what was done to them. They're struggling with their own emotional freedom. They're struggling with their own bondage. and They're held by the bitterness and anger of what was done to them. So, well, they should forgive me. Here's the thing about forgiveness. When we've wronged someone, we cannot demand their forgiveness. We can't. If that's the point of confession, is to try and say, hey, I'm confessing this, so you need to get over it. That's, trying, that's manipulative. That's trying to collect outcomes. That's between them and God. Confession is not about what they do with, what, with the hurt I gave them. Well, they should forgive me. Yes, but you, we don't. Remember what I said earlier, when, you, when you're in debt to somebody, you've lost that authority, the borrower's servant to the lender. You've lost the moral authority to demand forgiveness. Can't say that. In fact, I remember a story years and years ago when a couple sat in my office looking for pastoral help with their marriage problem. This is, this is my goodness, this is 18 years ago probably. And I'm a young guy and I'm trying to figure this thing out for the two of them. And, and he had done something really stupid and wrong. 
and they're sitting there and she's upset. And he looks at, they're across my desk and he looks at her and he says, you just, the Bible says you're supposed to forgive me. And I'm like, oh. So I'm like, well, <laughs> man, yes, but sir, you, you don't, you have no, you have no authority, you have no, you can't say that. So I like separate the two of them and I said to him, I said, listen, the Bible might say that, but God has the authority to work in her life that way. I might have some influence or authority to encourage thoughts of forgiveness in her life, but you've lost your authority to say that with what you've done. You, just lost. you can't go to somebody and say, I did wrong in what I did to you, but you can't do wrong in not forgiving me. You know? I mean, we've lost that ability to demand that. And so at some point, and I, I believe in forgiveness, that's another topic upcoming but here's the point today. When it comes to me, I owe you, my job is not to sit there and say, you have to accept. My job is to sit there and say, hey, I acknowledge that hurt and I was wrong. Is there anything I can do? Will you forgive me? Okay. Can I make it right? If I can, I will. Sometimes you can't make it right. What are they going to do? What can I do for you? Go kill yourself. Well, I can't do that. That's wrong. What can I do? Well, you hurt my child, so go slap your child. I can't do that. That's wrong. I can't sin to make it right with you. Give me a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars. I don't have a hundred dollars. I got a mortgage to pay. I'll pay you a dollar a week for the next hundred weeks, and maybe we'll get, I'll do what I can. If I can do it, I'll do it. Well, you can't do anything. Then I'm, at least you can tell me that I can't do anything. I'm still sorry. Well, I won't forgive you. That's your prerogative. That's, you can tell me that. Confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right. It's not to manipulate somebody. It's humbly saying, this is what I owe you for what happened, what I did. I'm making it right. You can't demand forgiveness. So, well, I just don't like this. And, and I understand. Listen, when, I, when I'm preaching today, here's, the, here's what I know. We sing about the Holy Spirit earlier. Here's what I know about the Holy Spirit. If, if there's someone you owe a confession to, you owe an acknowledgement, an apology to, something you've done, maybe they don't know you did it, but you need, you need to make it, they've been hurt and they need to know it was you, or they know, but they don't know how you feel, they don't know if you care. But you're, if there's someone like that in your life, here's what I know. Probably somewhere in the talk we've already had, God's brought them to your mind. And for some of us, it's like, thank you, now I know what I need to do. But for some of us, it might be, you might be sitting there saying, no, I've been resisting that for years, and I don't like you very much, Arlen, at all for bringing this up today, and I wish you'd shut up and, go, and let us go home. Because, no. And I know it's, it can be hard to confront things we've done wrong. But I want to ask you for a minute to turn it around. Can I do that? Can you turn it around? Let me ask you this question instead. Whose apology do you most desire and least expect? Whose apology in your life would you most, you'd never expect, you, you just do not expect to ever hear it. But boy, would it mean, it'd be, mean something, it'd be shocking. How would it impact you if they confessed it, acknowledged what they did, acknowledged the hurt, were sorry, and asked if they could make it right? What would it impact you? If you picked yourself off the floor a minute later and said, really? What? How would it impact you? It might not make it at all better, but what would it do to the part of your soul that's so hurt? The power of confession can change everything on both ends of a situation. And your confession, please hear me, your confession may be the last piece 
necessary for them to overcome the destructive bitterness and hurt that is plaguing their lives. Well, that's their problem. No, I've caused hurt. I want to help them have the ability to address it to the power that I can. Well, they're wrong too. I, is that the point right now? Is that, a different, is that a different O for a different week in this series maybe? The question is, what do I owe you? And my confession, my admission may be the thing. You see, we are not able, we're not able to repay God for all that he's done for us, but we may be able to repay our fellow man for what we've done to them. Maybe. At least Confession is bringing the wrong to the light with the intention of making it right. Let me say it this way on the screen because summarize what I've been saying for the last few minutes. Confession is giving those we've wronged the freedom to be at peace as much as they are able to be. Is giving them the freedom to be at peace as much as they're able. Maybe they are not able. Maybe the, maybe the, the hurt was too big for anything we, we can do to make it feel better. Maybe they're emotionally unhealthy and they just won't do well. But giving them, the ones we've wronged, the freedom by not making it more complicated, by not acknowledging it, by the feeling of our pride and uh, the pride that comes from our, our wound that we caused and that they think that we got one over on them or we, what we said or what we did or what we didn't do, and they think we don't care. And the humility of confession gives them a freedom that it's up to them to what happens next. It's up to them to what, to what they do with our confession. But if we owe it, we should give it. And you're like, okay, okay, I get it, Arlen. It's good for their sake. But what is, okay, I, and I know that's what God wants me to do, but... This is finding emotional freedom, Arlen. I'm thinking this sermon series is about me finding emotional freedom, like living debt-free. And you're telling me how that will give them freedom. What does that do for me? I want to tell you right now that this power of confession when we owe someone does more for you than you'll ever know. Because it, it maybe it can't fix everything. You might be surprised at what it does fix, but even if it can't, it will do something for that part of you that you've learned to live with and you don't even know it's there. Maybe you do know it's there. Maybe it keeps you up at night. Maybe it bothers you when it comes into your mind. Maybe it makes you angry because you're angry for feeling the way you feel. Maybe it's just like a weight on your spirit. So it's an anchor to your spiritual life that's stunting your growth. It's an emotional baggage that you carry. And confession does something for you because confession can bring us emotional freedom on our end. Confession can bring us emotional freedom on our end on top of what it could do for somebody else. I want to say three statements. We're almost done now. Three statements about what confession looks like. And then we'll, a couple of verses and we'll wrap up shortly. Uh, first statement is this. Confession doesn't give you freedom from consequences. Right? Confession doesn't give us freedom from consequences. Like, if, if let's pick an obvious, drastic one. A person goes to the, to the police today and says to the officers, hey, you didn't know this, but I killed someone, and I'm letting you know. And since I've confessed it to you, I'm free to go, right? I confessed it, so there's no consequences. That's why you go to court and judge, I plead guilty, I confess it, so I get to go home now, right? Right, that's not how that works. Consequences still come at any level. When you do something wrong, there could be consequences. Now, I will say this, and we know this to be true, confession often lessens the consequences. 
That's why when people say I'm guilty in court, the sentence is usually lighter than the person in court who says I'm not guilty and then they have to prove it and they won't admit it, right? And with any relationship of life, when you do something wrong and you say, hey, let me acknowledge it, whatever consequences come are usually better than if they find out another way or if they know that you don't think you care, the consequences of, of not confessing is always worse. In fact, let me say this to you. It's not on the screen, but this is a good statement here. The consequences of confession are, less, are far less severe than the consequences of concealment. Let me say that again. The consequences of confession are far less severe than the consequences of concealment. So confession doesn't give us freedom from consequences. But you know, sometimes the consequences are our own prison. Like, there are, there are people in prison today who the worst thing they wrestle with is not where they are. It's they're wrestling with what they feel internally. And some of us, we're, we're afraid of some consequence on some part of a relationship if we confess. But what we're dealing with internally is worse. So what does confession do? Let me make this statement. Confession, a confession gives you freedom from the chains of secrecy. It gives you freedom from the chains of secrecy. Because secret sins thrive in the shadows, and the shadows are a lousy place for things to hide, and they're bigger than ever. Confession gives you freedom from the chains, the bondage of secrecy. And then let me say this to go with it. Confession gives you freedom from the bondage of fear. Half the reason we don't make things right is we are afraid of what will happen if we do. But fear is bondage. It makes us slaves to fear. We're so afraid of what could happen. It's almost like when you're dreading getting the shot. It's almost the dread of going into it's worse than the actual shot, you know. We're so afraid of what could happen if we actually go and try to make things right that we're living in fear and it's bondage. And the chains of secrecy are horrible. Can I tell you something that we all know? We all know this, don't we? Things are always scarier in the dark. That's why when I come into this building, I love this building. I, I, um, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of person who's, who, who thinks th people, things are creepy. I'm not a ghost-scared kind of guy at all. I'm just not that way. And I walk around this building in the dark sometimes. But once in a while, I'm like, you know what? At nighttime, I'm going to turn some lights on because I don't know. <laughs> you know? At home, are you that way? Things are always scarier in the dark. But when you bring it to the light... It's not so bad. Once you turn the lights on, whatever's scary in the dark doesn't seem so scary. That's why all the scary movies, are, the scenes happen in the dark all the time, right? Most of the time, at least. Because things are always scary in the dark, but put it in the light. And when you take that thing that you're wrestling with and say, well, I don't know what they're going to do. What if they won't forgive me? They might not. What if they say there's nothing I can do? They might not. What if they're angry? They might be. But you're sitting here already living that anyhow. You're imagining that they're angry. You're imagining they'll have a bad reaction. And then just thinking about what could happen. You know what you could do sometime? Write down the thing you're most scared of. Just write it down and say, what am I afraid of? And look at it on paper and realize how ridiculous it is. And say, you know what? I'm already living under all that pressure anyhow by holding this in secret. Break the chains of secret. Break the bondage of fear and say, hey, if I confess it to you, if I acknowledge it, and if you react in a way that I don't feel good about, at least it's been made, at least we know. At least it's been put in the open. At least we've done our part. At least I can still say, at least I can say to you, I know, and I know you're still upset, and I know there's nothing I can do, but I am really sorry, and walk away, and it's behind me. It's not haunting, it's not weighing on me anymore. 
And it might do something miraculous that I never imagined, but I know that I have to do something. It says living in the bondage of fear and the chains of secrecy, even if there's consequences. It's a Bible verse that we all ought to remember, and I like it in, I, 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 I like to use multiple Bible translations sometimes. I love the NLT, but I like the way the New King James uses this one. Proverbs 28, 13, I'm going to give it to you. He who covers his sins will not prosper. That's what we do. We think, I have to cover my sins or I won't prosper. I'll get in trouble. It'll cost me something. So, so I can prosper. i got to cover this up. People have been guilty a long time. I talked about this earlier. Churches have been guilty and organizations have been guilty. Denominations have been guilty of, of covering sins that should never have been covered. It should have been just dealt with. But all of us sometimes, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our neighborhood, our community, in our jobs, we try to cover because we're afraid of what will happen. But he who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Say mercy from the people I've wronged? Maybe, oftentimes surprisingly, at least to some degree. But always with God who says to you, love me, love each other as yourself, make things right with them, then come back to the altar, you find mercy. You find mercy, if nowhere else, you find mercy in your soul when a weight is lifted, when you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I did what I could do, and I'm not running from it anymore. I've done my part. At the very least, there's that, and usually there's a whole lot more. I can tell you stories all day that are, I can spend an hour telling you tear-jerker stories from my years as a pastor of people who've experienced this principle in their life. The power of confession. Sometimes restoration happened, sometimes it didn't, but they were set free from emotional bondage. I have a pastor friend who went back to seminary and got a degree in being a licensed counselor. And he stopped pastoring because he had done it for a long time and he wanted to be a licensed counselor instead. And he's telling me the story uh, one day, later on, that he encountered a story that was so powerful. Um, he said that there was a couple that he was working with in marriage, and he was giving them biblical counsel. And he had watched his principles help a lot of couples get over some problems by teaching them biblical principles about how to address their marriage problems and listening to what happened and making things right. But this one couple, he told me, this one couple, he could not get them. He could not get them better. It just nothing was working. Something was wrong on a deeper level, and he couldn't figure it out. So... In the course of time, one day, he's talking to them separately sometimes, together sometimes. One day, the man confesses to him that a couple years earlier, he had had a one-time affair on his wife. He cheated on his wife once. And he stopped it right away. It didn't go on any further. He felt horrible about it. But he did it. And he's never told his wife. And the counselor said to him, the pastor friend said, you need to tell your wife. He said, I can't tell her. He said, well, I, you have to tell her. He said, I can't tell her. He's, you don't know how jealous she is. She, she's mad at the suspicion of me doing something wrong. Like, that's been tension before. I mean, just whatever. This, this is going to blow up ugly. She'll leave me. And the counselor says, well, sir, 
Look at you. Your marriage is bad anyhow. She could leave you anyhow. You, your, your marriage is about over anyway. Seriously. Like, what are you holding on to? You're afraid that this will end your marriage? Your marriage is almost over anyhow. And what is still existing is miserable. Like, what are you so afraid of by telling the truth to your wife? You owe it to her. He says, I'm so afraid. He says, listen, I'm telling you, man, it ain't worse than what this is. This has been ugly. You've got to talk to her and make things right. He says, it's not going to go well. He says, it probably won't go well. It probably won't. It may be the end. But it's better than what we're doing right now. Yeah, I'll try. He pulled her back in the room. They talked together. He says, let's meet again. I think it was the next day or the day after. Let's meet again soon. And he sent them on their way. The pastor friend who's now counselor said that he counseled several other people that day. At the end of his counseling, he went out that evening to his car to go home. When he went to his car, he looked across the lot, and there sat in the car was that couple sitting there in their parking lot in their car talking several hours later. And he's like, oh boy, it's going down. He got in his car, and he said a prayer for them, and he drove home, thought maybe I'll never see them again. I'll get like a canceled appointment or maybe a courtesy call saying, hey, it's over, so don't bother, but thanks a lot. You know, he just, that's it. He drove home. Next day or the day after when it was their appointment, he sat in his office, and when it was time for their appointment, they walked in, and he looked up, and he said, he said to himself, um, he said that it was the first time in all his time working with them, they were holding hands. And he sat back, and they sat down, and they held hands, and he, they looked at him, and there was a lot of pain there. There was a lot of pain. And a lot of time that it would have to be worked on some stuff. But there was a peace in their countenance through the pain that he'd never seen before. And he said to himself, I think they're going to make it. Now, it may not have gone that way. It doesn't matter how it goes. Here's the principle. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. As I wrap up, let me say this to you. We ultimately owe God for anything we do. Again, whenever we wrong anybody, we've wronged his creation, his children. We've done, gone against his, his will for us. We've, we owe God. If you and God are at odds today, if you, are, if, you, if you feel distant from God, I want to give you some good news. He is easy to confess to because he loves you and he is love. 1 John 1, 9, John writes this. He says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Here's the good news. God is faithful. He loves you. His arms are open wide. He's already went to the cross to show you that he'll pay for all of your sins. He, he wants relationship with you. And we tend to hide. When we're the ones who are wrong, we tend to pull away and hide. And you might feel distant from God because of things in your life that you've never made right. But I have good news for you. Confession, which includes not just saying I admit it, but it's, it's, the, it's the change. It's being wanted to be washed clean from all the, the wrong. That God is there saying, yes. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, I'm faithful to do that. Because he loves you. He is love. His arms are open wide. Let's make today, maybe if the most important thing someone will get out of this whole thing, is you make that relationship right. Not in the ignoring the others. If there's anything else, we got to do that. We'll talk about that. We've talked about that already today. 
But if you are at odds with God today or if you feel distant from him, go to him. Admit, acknowledge where you are. Confess. He is faithful. He is just. His arms are open wide. The door is open, but the choice is yours.